Hello, my name's Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about Steven Sayadian, a director of... Oh no, Will, how could we have done this? Pornography? That's right, folks. We're talking about porn again. Uh, but not just porn, because this filmmaker is one of the only porn directors to become a crossover figure in the world of both porn and cult movies. But the way that he did it is interesting in that if you look at his filmography, technically he only has one non-porn film, feature film, Dr. Caligari. And that film, though, is a culmination of the style that he would utilize all the way since he started directing features. Technically, he's not credited on Night Dreams. His first credit is Cafe Flesh, but Night Dreams is also one of his own films. He has an interesting life, an interesting career. First of all, he designed the iconic poster for Brian De Palma's Dressed to Kill. You know, you've seen that poster, The Legs. Oh, yeah. He also designed the poster for The Fog by John Carpenter. As you alluded to, he made several very strange and arty adult films. Cafe Flash from 1982 is one of the only adult films to have crossover success as a midnight movie, then played in some mainstream movie theaters. And what's notable is it seems to have been more successful as a cult midnight movie than as a porn film. Now, I've read that there was an R-rated edit of this movie. And I don't know if it's ever been released. I went looking for it and I found a fan edit of the film that removes all of the pornography. But I'm not sure if the R-rated one is still floating out there. And if it is, what would that be? Like, it would be Cafe Flesh, but that that is not a narrative. It is a series of tableaus, like a lot of this director's films. But taking the pornography out of it, you would just have like a giant pencil dancing around for 30 seconds before you cut to the next scene. Well, it's not hard to see why he developed a cult following. And by the way, his porn films, he directed under the pseudonym Rinse Dream. That's important. Mm -hmm. His movies, first of all, are bursting with strange visual ideas. You mentioned the pencil scene. Like, his movies, all of them, including Dr. Caligari, are done in this strange 1980s new wave style. Lots of fog machine, lots of pastel or neon colors, very minimalist sets, entirely done on sets with, like, black backgrounds and jagged angles and sudden bursts of really vivid color. It looks like a theatrical production. That is the easiest way to describe it of like, oh, I'm putting something on stage. You do not need to kind of, you know, anchor it in any reality. You can just present abstract images or ideas and shapes. And that can, you know, be the canvas that we're painting this narrative on. Or I say narrative very loosely for a lot of his films because his pornography is structured in in the way much pornography is, is that it is kind of, you know, sex scene and then people talking and then sex scene. He is not a man that it seems that interested in kind of narrative thrust or a dramatic backbone to his films. Yeah, I mean, they're like porn films in the sense that like the theorist Linda Williams wrote about how porn films are like musicals where they have numbers. They do follow that structure. But they're very different in the sense that they, they do not seem to be, well, first of all, they don't seem as their primary interest being erotic. No, I think that what his interest is from the get-go is presenting a surreal image. And then oftentimes the pornography then comes out of that. And once the pornography starts, it is just 
porn. Like if you watch something like Night Dreams, like there'll be a cowboy tableau of two women and then they will start, you know, jumping on top of each other. And he doesn't kind of elevate the way that pornography is presented because he's still working within the confines of how you shoot a porno. And like at a certain point, you just got to get that full length running time. Just let him at it, and then you got yourself a five-minute sequence. Um, I sort of agree, and I sort of disagree, just because, like, uh, yes, they play out as sex scenes with, you know, the money shot and all that. Yeah, you get the close-up of the genitals smashing into each other from that low angle that you're like... Who who wants this? Who is this? Who whose favorite angle is this? Uh, yeah, that that's a good question. Um, but then they also, on top of that, in in his in his movies, people are dressed in bizarre costumes. Yes, they they have face paint and or or you know like as you said, they're dressed as pencils or some bizarre thing like that. A big box of cream of weed. Yeah, there's often music, uh, typically by Mitchell Frome, that is atonal and bizarre and kind of hard driving in a way that you know it's it's not the bomb chicka wah wah music it's it's new wavy and strange but then also these scenes work in harmony or are part of a narrative that is typically quite sex negative and not in that way that like Gerard Damiano is sex negative so you mean it is not rooted in any kind of Catholic guilt right you watch Memories Within Miss Aggie or The Devil and Miss Jones and there's this kind of attraction repulsion to, you know, oh, sex is sinful, but but isn't it also erotic? That's kind of what's going on in Damiano's movies. But in the Rinse Dream slash Steven Syadian movies, it's more like, yeah, this is this is fucked. It's fucked that you're watching this. You're an idiot. You're a loser. Do you think that's how he feels? I actually do. Or do, does he take joy in like presenting these images? Because, you know, he was like the advertising executive for Hustler. So any iconic hustler image, he was behind right. that. Right. Well, I actually think what he's doing is working across purposes. He does have a lot of joy and excitement in presenting these images. He loves creating very strange and surreal tableaus. But then he has no interest in whether those tableaus are erotic. No, I agree with that. Typically, the stories of his movies, including Dr. Caligari, are kind of like, isn't this sort of fucked up? Or like Cafe Flesh, I think one of the reasons why it became a crossover hit is because it's basically saying the porn audience is impotent. The porn audience are losers. Have you seen Night Dreams? Yes, I did. And that one is about someone taking control of the sexual fantasies, though. And it's about her, like, going through them all. Yeah, Night Dreams, of the of the ones I watched, and, and I did dip into his made-for-video productions a little bit later. All the go-go films? <laughs> yeah, but of the ones that are shot on film, like, Night Dreams is the one that I think, you know, even though I don't I don't think it's primarily concerned with eroticism, it's the one that I think functions more like a regular porn film than Cafe Flesh does. Where was pornography, like, when in the early 80s, as far as being produced and the feature films that were being made? Well, so in the early 1970s, after Deep Throat, up to and including and just a little bit after that movie, it it was a bit of a wild west. Gerard Damiano used to complain that, you know, after some of his very auteur movies that he was making in the 70s, Devil and Miss Jones, Memories Within Miss Aggie, Damiano used to say in interviews that the rules and regulations started to take place. You had to have certain things in all of the movies or else you wouldn't get bookings. You know, the, the whole five positions and a money shot kind of thing. Somebody like Damiano, somebody like Radley Metzger, certainly they were 
able to insert some creativity in it, but I think the, the process became a little more standardized. And in the early 80s, too, probably the migration to video is beginning to happen as well. And does that kind of turn the porn feature films more base than they've ever been before? Because the idea of even having a plot gets kind of tossed away once you can do it more quickly than you ever could. Certainly when they were on video, like by the mid 80s, that would happen. But I think if you look at some of those ones from the early 1980s, the movies are very slick and professional looking. You know, the sorts of movies that Vinegar Syndrome is putting out, movies like, I don't know, Sex World or... Any of the Roberta Finley ones that were coming out in the early 80s as well. Or Roommates. Roommates is kind of a canonical one from the early 1980s where like, the acting is pretty good. The storytelling is pretty good. It looks like a B-movie, basically. Who can forget Taboo from 1980? Ah, classic. Classic. Now, my sense with Stephen Sayadian, aka Rinse Dream, is that he would have rather been making music videos and rather doing interesting layouts than making pornography per se. Yes. So I feel Will is coming uh, locked and loaded that when this clicked into place for him, he was like, hmm, all right, I'm going to watch it through this lens now (laughs) that he's disgusted by the pornography that he's making. I will say that I do like him. I do like these movies and I like what he's going for. Yeah. Why Gerard Damiano plus in Will's book? But Rinse Dream, because of the way that he approaches sex, you know, he doesn't get the boost that Damiano does, even though that basically they're arriving at the same place. You've correctly identified that Damiano speaks to me very strongly, and Rinse Dream, I approach with a little bit more distance. Rinse Dream is like, hey, I have Catholic guilt too. That's why my movies are the way that they are. I do find Cafe Flash pretty cold to the touch, but let's start with Night Dreams. So... This one was made with recycled sets from, you know, that he would use for his photo shoots, including for some of the movie posters. Like, I believe the set from Dress to Kill, the movie poster set that is, is used in this. Oh, yeah. Well, they do the shot. So the main character is Mrs. Van Houten, played by Dorothy LeMay. And she is in this institution, this sort of psychiatric ward, where there are these two scientists who are jolting her with electricity to induce various erotic dreams and fantasies and we see six or seven of these of these fantasies that yeah play out like vignettes but also feel a bit like music videos and they are very unusual there's a wild west one the weirdest one is she's in a kitchen and there's this big cream of wheat box and then there's a big uh piece of bread that's playing the saxophone behind her this is the thing about these movies like rewatching them uh for this episode is that like i've seen them all piecemeal in five second gifts for like the last 15 years of my life and and you and you've seen them you've seen them in like five minute installments while you were jacking off to them you know of course over, yeah over and like, over and over again yeah that sax playing piece of bread i can't get enough of it So I think I think if I have any distance from this movie or any of these movies, it's like I see that scene. I see the I see the guy dressed as the cream of wheat box. And it's kind of like, okay, these are disconnected images. They're kind of like postmodern. And what is it all in service to? Yeah, I think that I can kind of lock into why you bounced off of some of these a little. And it's that they are so arch. And that is not usually the pornography that you consume. Uh, I mean, does anyone does that <laughs> like does, the word consume <laughs> does anyone consume pornography ironically well not ironically but like if you watch any of the radley metzger films like he doesn't want to shoot those porn scenes either 
but he can build around them a narrative that are in service of those sex scenes. While Rin Stream is not trying to do that. He's like, listen, I got to do this. Here's the setup. Here's the sex. Let's move on. But then I also think, like, I like all of these individual tableaus sort of individually. And then when you put them all together, I'm left with a bit of a sense of, okay, what does it all, why all these together? What is it building mm-hmm. to? I had the sets. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. They were available. That's why I made it Yeah, like I this. guess so. Maybe I'm overthinking it. Because I will say, all these movies, every individual scene I enjoyed. It's more when you put them all together, I feel a bit like, okay, this is going to be really mean to say, and I don't fully mean it. But you know when David Brandt is doing the dance in the office? <laughs> Why, why is this your well, problem? Well, it, it's just like he's doing this dance. It's like, yeah, that's a lot of stuff. That's a lot of stuff that you've done. A lot of a lot of moves. What does it all amount? How does it all play in harmony together? Well, does it have to? Can it be a Bunuelian image of these being presented on screen? I like Bunuel better. And the thing is, is it like when these movies were coming out, no one else was doing stuff like this. That's true. Like at this level of kind of like slickness or even production value or any ideas behind them. Well, anyway, this is all friendly criticism because I did like these movies. And I think Night Dreams also, as it, I got more and more into it as it was going along because I do think it's doing something effective. I do think it has this rhythm to it. It has this pace that it maintains. I think it does kind of build. The scenes don't necessarily connect to each other, but there's a rhythm that the movie establishes, a sort of musical rhythm that it builds to. By the end, I found it enveloping, if not necessarily erotically so. No, I don't think any of these films I found very erotic (laughs) as the way that they were presented. But hey, maybe it just was not for me. But I don't think it was really for anyone in that way, that when you hear these films being cult pictures, it is based solely around the stuff that is around the sex because the sex is not even like elevated by those images i feel it's not like oh wow it mixed together creates something wholly new it's like no they just happened one after the other they are not in tandem with each other well as i mentioned these movies weren't like huge hints with the raincoat brigade in fact cafe flash from 1982 which was this you know kind of big deal movie in cult circles it was beat for the adult film association best picture award by roommates kind of like uh ordinary people beating raging bull or something like that. Hey, Ordinary People, great movie. Hey, so is Roommates. So Cafe Flash, probably his most famous one. And this one, uh, very reminiscent stylistically, I feel, of Albert Pune's Radioactive Dreams. Oh, I completely agree. So it's set in a post-apocalyptic dystopian future. The nuclear aftermath has rendered 99% of the population incapable of having sex. And the remaining 1% are mandated, presumably by the government, to perform live sex shows. And now these live sex shows... Very elaborate. (laughs) Yeah, I was reminded of, like, Adam Agoyan's Exotica at that lettered Cohen strip club where it's like... Everybody knows. Yeah, it's like no strip club I could ever imagine. I mean, it starts with, like, a rat going down on a woman. Yeah. You know, to take Will's side, Stephen is like, Is this what you want, you fucking sickos? Or, you know, the scene where it's like it's an office setting... And it's a bunch of guys dressed as pencils. (laughs) And they're dancing around. And there's a woman who is like, 
droning to this new wave music beat like should i take a memo should i take a memo should i take a memo you know like that over and over again and truly i i find it difficult to imagine that anyone has ever jerked off to this (laughs) i can guarantee you some 14 year old boy (laughs) who had this on tape has absolutely done that or actually now that i think of it some like 47 year old guy who this was his rental for the week and he was like by gum i'm gonna make it work i walked through that beaded curtain this is the tape i picked and paid my five dollars for i ain't bringing it back i got it for the weekend i'm doing it twice a day so the drama of the film centers on a couple a couple of sex negatives as they're called the woman by the way is played by michelle bauer who would later go on to become a beloved scream queen in direct-to-video horror movies she would later pop up as a pair of stunt breasts in dr caligari they are you know a sex negative couple they cannot they cannot uh, accomplish it and like so much of the population they go to these cafes these cabarets where they watch these strange uh, performances but as the film goes along Cafe Flash introduces this super stud character, uh, Johnny Rico, and she feels herself attracted to him. And she realizes, she has a sort of uh, uh, coming out, a realization that she is in fact a sex positive. And the triumphant conclusion uh, occurs with her on stage. Now, doesn't somebody else get forced in this film as well because they're a sex positive to be like, hey, you're sex positive. You got to do these shows. Yes. And that's one of many kind of disquieting elements of the plot. Like this is a movie about faking it. The, the people on stage who are capable of doing it are sort of forced into it. And so even even the reality of what they're doing is fake. So it's commentary on the porn industry itself. You could say so. You know, you can say that this is a movie about the impotence of the viewing audience. It could be interpreted as, as Rinse Dream saying, you know, like this relationship between us and you is a sadomasochistic relationship. Or Rin's dream is just like, I find all of this stuff so goddamn sexy, I'm putting it all in this film. I hope you enjoy it too. Maybe, maybe he loves the idea of like a guy dressed as a rat going down on a woman. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, or the giant pencil dancing around. But I do think if anyone finds this movie erotic, and maybe it is possible, I think that what they're reacting to is the feeling of being made abject. Well, nothing wrong with that though. No, no, we're not here to kink shame. And so so this one, you know, we say it was a hit. It was a relative hit that like it got enough of a cult audience, but it did also lead many years later, surprisingly, to him making a non-porn film, Dr. Caligari. So this movie is, and by the way, this movie is the most unrestrained example of his style. It's unbound by the conventions of any genre. The porn movies do have to sort of technically operate as porn movies. This one owes itself to nothing. It's a sort of sequel slash tribute slash parody to The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. It's only that because the co-writer Jerry Stahl, famous for penning the book Permanent Midnight, which was made into the classic Ben Stiller film. Now, I didn't watch it for this podcast. Is there reference to him shooting these pornos in that movie? Because it was seemingly a big part of his life. I've actually never seen Permanent Midnight, but did you know that Jerry Stahl also wrote Bad Boys 2? Yes, I do. And that he was recently on the Chapo Trap House podcast. Hmm. Interesting. Well, he also wrote uh, Cafe Flash and Dr. Caligari for Mr. Rinse Dream. You'll recall in The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, that was a movie about a madman who ran an insane asylum. Well, in this film, it's about his granddaughter who wants to continue her grandfather's work. There are some elements cribbed from the plot of Night Dreams in this. So once again, there is a character named uh, Van Houten 
Mrs. Van Houten, who's, you know, kind of a nymphomaniac character. Now, is her nymphomania being uh, exploited by the dear doctor, or is it something that is just internal to her? Yes, the uh, granddaughter Caligari is definitely a bad person who is trying to harness people's uh, mental illness and exploit them. And, you know, when you talk about, like, what is Rin's Dream trying to say with these movies, one of the elements is that they are being implemented with these kind of sexual fantasies or sexual needs. And in the movie, it's played for laughs. So, yeah, this movie, uh, one of the interesting things it does is it synthesizes the look of German expressionism with 80s new wave stuff. So the jagged sets, the off-kilter camera angles, it doesn't necessarily have heavy shadows, but it does have, like, blackness in the background. All of that is with, again, like, neon and smoke machine kind of stuff. Very, very kind of cool that that he was able to accomplish that synthesis. And he's also able to, I mean, this is not a pornographic film, but it deals in some frank sexuality. It's interesting to see him sort of make text what would have been subtext in a movie like the original Caligari. I couldn't believe that the movie ends the same way that Cafe Flesh does. It's like a long slow motion sequence, which is like, come on, Rint, you gotta have more than this in your arsenal, right? Yeah, and I mean, I was surprised watching Night Dreams after watching this movie that it's like, oh, this is, um, he, he definitely has certain ideas that he returns to over and over again. Like, people who are capable of having sex and people who aren't capable of having sex and the ones who are being sort of trapped in this like endless performance. I mean, I listened to the commentary that's on the beautiful looking Mondo Macabro 4K Blu-ray and he is just uh, the director. So complimentary to everyone and his idea of like how the sets and the visuals came was just like, I had this laying around uh, in my office because we used it in a Hustler shoot. So I was like, how can I implement this in a weird way? I definitely like the let's put on a show quality of this movie. Endless visual imagination there are certain images that like will stick with me most notably that scene where like she opens a doorway and the doorway leads to just this giant fleshy patch all over the doorway that i've seen like a million gifts of that coming out of it and also like there's a tongue that comes out of it this like really fleshy realistic giant tongue that she starts like caressing when asked about if he was influenced by David Cronenberg's Videodrome, he, the director went, yes, of course. <laughs> like, it came out before this. I've seen it. The thing about Dr. Caligari is that it's also completely unmoored from kind of like any coherence that everybody talks in like quotes or ironic asides. So I watch it. I watched this movie twice because I'm doing my due diligence. I actually watched it with Emily the second time because I was like, this is the kind of thing that you would like. And I enjoyed it the second time more knowing the kind of context around it freshly in my mind and not trying to grapple with all of these lines that are like all one liners, but that seem to be coming from another place. Yeah. I mean, maybe I should have watched it twice too, because I definitely found this like again i liked every minute of it but when you put all those minutes together i found it overwhelming very difficult to follow that was how i felt the first time too like to the point that i went wait is it over at the end i was like that's it and i like missed some details that on the second time was much more clear now did you watch any of his films after this i dipped into just a little bit of night dreams 3 i kind of like skipped around it you know night dreams 3 was made for video in the 90s and i gotta say 
impressively, it still looks like a rinse dream movie. It's still got the weird angles, the weird sets, the weird design. I mean, it also feels much more like a porn film, much, much pornier than the ones that came before. Dr. Caligari was not a financial success. It had some minor cult success, but certainly not immediately. So he was back directing porn. And I mean, I'm impressed in the Night Dream sequels that he was able to continue kind of at any level doing his signature style, but he definitely clearly suffered a little bit of Jack Horner syndrome, you know? I would love to know, like, what were his ultimate projects? Like, was he ever able to break out of this style? Because I don't think he can, because every single project that he made is, like, kind of nailed down in this specific aesthetic. Like, you watch Night Dreams 1, 2, 3... Uh, Dr. Caligari, Cafe Flesh, they are all of one piece. And like, what else did he want to do as like a narrative filmmaker? I think it's very exhausting. It's exhausting watching all of these movies together, and it must be exhausting like conceiving them and making them. And by the end of thinking about uh, Syadian, I definitely kind of thought that maybe I've seen, well, I don't know, I was going to say maybe I'd seen his whole arsenal, but it's always possible to come up with a new crazy image. Mm -hmm. I do feel like a certain amount of repetition comes in here. Certain of the same ideas kept appearing, certain of the same images. I guess that's being an auteur, but I did feel a little exhausted. But it's being an auteur that it's so visual and in your face. You don't have to work for it at all when you see this kind of stuff. And so all his films also so I think they had that kind of infamy to them because they were basically unavailable. And like Cafe Flesh remains only available in like the cheapest looking porn DVD you've ever seen. And it's only in the last few months that Dr. Caligari is available in this like pristine version that has been put out. It looks wonderful. So I understand that there have been issues in restoring his movies, that the elements haven't always been in great condition. I hope that changes. I hope Night Dreams and Cafe Flash eventually circulate in better looking versions. Yeah, well, that's the problem with film is that like if it gets destroyed, it's just gone forever. But there's been whispers uh, from companies that the elements may have been found. So I know me and Will will be right there buying them when they come out just to discover more of him, especially in that like the pristine version. And I would love to see the R-rated cut of Cafe Flesh, which I got to say, the film only runs like less than 70 minutes and R-rated cut of it would be like 55 minutes so long. So do we have any letters this week? We do have letters as per usual. You can send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com. Our first letter is from ML Kennedy and he goes, Justin has put his disease in me. Oh boy, what a subject line. For the first time in my life, I have a job where I can listen to music podcasts all day. As such, I went from just listening to No Such Thing as a Bad Movie and a few important cinema clubs to subscribing to No Such Thing Important Cinema Club and Bay Street Video Podcast. I really had no choice as one of my go-to podcasts re was revealed to be run by a sex predator. I stopped listening to How Did This Get Made? because of my long one-sided feud with Paul Shear and Gilbert Gottfried had to up and die on me. Wait, who was revealed to be a sex predator in a podcast? I haven't heard this. I'd be interested to know. The letter continues, since Justin is now my best friend, that is not official. What other shows would we recommend? The other guy can chime in too. <laughs> the other guy. <laughs> Did you ever listen to podcasts at work? Was that something that was ever accessible to oh, you? Oh, sure. Yeah. There, there have been times when I've listened to podcasts at work. Well, the thing about movie podcasts is uh, we may make them and therefore um it's a bit like if you if you uh make hot dogs all day are you gonna eat a hot dog for dinner i don't know that's the first metaphor if it was the fanciest hot dog in the world that you have not eaten anywhere else that is the only reason that i would eat it 
that's a tough ask that like you you got to impress me in some way that like you're going to give me either movies or opinions that I have not heard anywhere else. That's the only reason I would listen to something. Well, one podcast that I have listened to a lot lately is Charles Band's podcast, The Full Moon Freak Show. Is it still going? I think it stopped, didn't it? There was like a season finale, so maybe it's coming back at some mm. point. I hope it comes back. I've been enjoying it. It's the same sort of guests that you would expect. It's a lot of guests who, if you're anything like Justin and me, you've probably heard a lot of interviews with, you know, people like Roger Corman, Eli Roth, Joe Bob Briggs, John Waters, Rob Zombie. But I think the fact that Charles Band is a filmmaker himself brings out something interesting in all of the guests. They can all kind of talk shop with him a little bit more. The Rob Zombie episodes are fun because it's fun to hear him talk about making the Halloween movies with the Weinsteins, you know, uh, talking about how difficult her, uh, Bob Weinstein was to work with and how, like, the only way to deal with him was to fight back, uh, kind of yell back at him. And then he would be like, you know, I, he'd say something like, oh, you're a street fighter, just like me. You know, that's the only <laughs> that was the only way. You know, the interview with John Waters, I thought was kind of interesting because, like, you could tell that Waters didn't really know who Charles Band was. Which, which is interesting. Like, it's interesting hearing, you know, because John Waters really positioned himself as a kind of like, you know, he knew everything about exploitation movies. But obviously, once he got older, you know, when you're in your 50s, you're not all that interested in ghoulies, are no, you? No, absolutely not. Or at least or at least he he wasn't. I'm sure lots of people are. I mean, what, what are you talking about? I love ghoulies and never won't. I, yeah, and, and you're 75 years old. <laughs> for, you, for, for me... Uh, I'm looking here. What podcast am I listening? Uh, we Hate Movies, which, uh, you know, features one of our good friends on it. Of course, I'm subscribed we, to You that. know, We Hate Movies is great, and I love it a lot more. Uh, to be honest, I like it more than The Flophouse. Ooh, those are some uh, strong words. Why do you like it more than The Flophouse? I don't necessarily want to speak ill of another podcast, so I won't. I, I've been noticing on The Flophouse, like, they'll be like, eh, I wasn't even watching the movie that I'm talking about today. And it's like, but I'm listening to you talk about it. <laughs> like, watch the movie. Yeah, it's tough when it becomes becomes a business, right? Uh, I've been listening to the Pure Tokyo Scope podcast because uh, it's it's hosted by the author of the book Tokyo Scope. We've talked about this before, that book on Japanese cinema. It's two guys that live in Japan. The other one wrote uh, an excellent book about how kind of Japanese media took over the world. And it's just kind of like a shoot in the shit podcast where they talk about Japanese news you wouldn't hear anywhere else. And then they usually pick a main subject that they kind of riff on throughout. So that's a lot of fun i have become someone who listens to the blank check podcast and i've done it only because you know i started listening to a few episodes as i was like cutting gold ninja video stuff and they get in deep on these movies in a way that it's not just like surface stuff like if i see a, a podcast is like three hours i'm like oh my god no thank you but they go into it even though that they are like the most bougie like they live in new york they talk about all these fancy restaurants that they go to well yeah i mean i've actually never heard the blank check podcast not because i'm like boycotting it or anything i just like it falls under that category of oh god a movie podcast like i do that for a living um i know a lot of people love it though yes even though sometimes they have guests on where you're like but they don't they don't know anything about this. Why Why are they here? And you can feel the host like have to lift them up and do the heavy lifting. Hey, if more celebrities want to be on our podcast. <laughs> yeah, we love it. We do the heavy lifting too. You know, I like, I like the Video Archives podcast, but prolonged exposure to it is like radiation to me. <laughs> I, I, I sometimes, like Quentin Tarantino, he's, he's very interesting and smart and has an interesting perspective on a lot of things. So like, I'm always curious what he thinks. 
prolonged exposure can be a little difficult. I literally just subscribed to it again yesterday because I was talking to Peter and he recommended a film. He's like, oh, you should do this at your mind melter. And I was like, wait a minute. Where did you hear about this movie? And he was like, uh, the video archives. And I was like, no, I'm not doing this because people listen to that podcast and they watch the movie. And then you go on Letterboxd and it's all like two star reviews where they're like, well, Tarantino recommended this. So I, I watched it. Uh, I don't see what he sees in it. But I want to tell you people, though, those people, Quentin Tarantino is a very special kind of man. OK, <laughs> yes. You know, and he's had a very special kind of history. And, you know, don't try this at home. He's a professional i would love if tarantino would like challenge himself and watch like new movies that he would then have to talk about because anytime he's talked about new movies you're like what is he talking about maybe he doesn't want to maybe he doesn't want to speak disrespectfully of colleagues i loved that one appearance he made on the pure cinema podcast where he talked about the he talked about the east side kids for like an hour love it listening to him go on and on about the bowery boys it's like this is why i'm all i am pro tarantino it's just that when he gets into that 70s funk and it's like okay we get it like you were a kid when you saw these movies and that's why you like them but then when they do something like the relic i I like hearing him talk about that kind of stuff because then he has to kind of evaluate it from like it was the 90s it's different from him just growing up with it so that that's fun to listen to so listen i'm resubscribed and i would just like to say that i would i would kill to have him on our podcast well i think i resubscribed too because joe dante was on an episode of the video archives i I listened to that one yeah you gotta get joe down those like pathways that like he never gets to talk about like an east side kid style one because like on um his podcast anytime like something very obscure comes up you feel like joe kind of perk up because he's like oh i get to talk about this but it'll start with him being like oh oh yeah, well, that film wasn't that successful. But then you'll start saying director names and like connecting them together. And you're like, yes, yes, yes. So more of that. Joe should be on our podcast. <laughs> yes, I would love Joe to be on our podcast. I don't know what what subject we could talk about, but I'm sure we can come up with something. Because he'd probably be like, oh, we don't we don't need to talk about that. No one's really interested in that, right, guy? No, no, we're, we're the place. We're the place to talk about those subjects. And of course, I've been listening to, you know, movie podcasts that go in deep. Man, the What a Cartoon podcast, which is a uh, sh- sh- a offshoot of Talking Simpsons, they just did a five-hour episode about Little Shop of Horrors, Frank Oz's film. And it's like, I cannot imagine talking about a movie for that long. <laughs> like, And they make it feel natural when you hear it. Like, I record two episodes back-to-back, and I'm like, I'm so tired. I need to sit down and nap. I've been talking for so long. <laughs> But like, do you imagine doing it for five hours in a day? I mean, you've been on their podcast for three hours and I can feel you start to like fray by the end of it where you're like, do we need to talk about this joke? Like, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Uh, so, I mean, I think I say that with much more affection than you conveyed because... No, you do it. But knowing you, I'm like, I, I can feel it. I mean, <laughs> like... I, I'm very impressed by what Henry and Bob do. I think I think the, the, their forensic level of level uh, attention to detail is very impressive. And I mean... They're obviously great guys who are like really smart and always have like something interesting to say about like like if we're if we're in the weeds talking about like one really brief joke on an episode of The Simpsons, they will still have something interesting to say about it, which I won't. There's some podcasts I've listened to and just unsubscribe where it's like this is two hours. They don't have anything interesting to say about this stuff. And that is not the case with them. I don't know how they do it, but they do it. (laughs) 
even though you can take a shot every time they mention 9-11. How often do you say 9-11 on Michael and Us? That's an interesting question. Probably a lot. It's not like I really pay attention to it exactly, but... But, but it is like a defining part because we were at the exact right age for it to make an impact on us. I mean, post 9-11 as a concept, everything kind of comes back to 9-11 in some way. I vividly remember getting home that day and my mom calling me from work and going, are you okay? And I went, yeah, what? Nothing has happened to me. <laughs> like Nothing is going on. She's like, are you sure you're okay? You know, because, you know, the towers. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, nothing's going around here. So thank you for calling. I remember going home for lunch that day and my mom saying, oh, uh, you know, something very bad has happened. A plane flew into the World Trade Center. And I thought, oh, my God. And then, like, coming to school, word had started to get around. But people were saying, oh, there were bombings in New York. That became the consensus on the schoolyard. There were there were bombings. And then in the afternoon, our teacher said what had happened and like some statement by George W. Bush was read aloud to us, incredibly enough. Wow, George W. Bush. Yeah, like George W. Bush had put out a statement that was read to us. And I just it's just funny to look back and think that I guess word got around quickly enough, but the way that information travels has changed so radically that would have got people would have been on their phones like instantly you would have found out five seconds after it happened what's wild about that is that like the rest of the school day went on oh yeah like it happened around lunchtime and then it just went on for the rest of the day and actually it happened like probably two hours before lunchtime yeah i remember walking by a class and people were watching it on tv and i was like what's going on i remember we did our french test in the afternoon and i and i remember (laughs) i remember brilliant me thinking well we're all too traumatized to do the french test like how can this be (laughs) nope it still happens (laughs) my friend once did the dastardly thing breaking toothpicks and putting them in a lock so like you can't put your key in it just to get out of a test classic i should i should have done that i wish i'd thought of that the people in charge were furious i don't think they ever figured out who it was but like i think that trick was only done once because like they were like if we ever catch you doing this like we will like suspend you or like expel you never do this again actually the letter continues with an ad but this is the kind of advertisement i can get behind also if anybody wants a show see this was his whole strategy the entire time i'm doing an entire podcast dedicated to fred olin ray called going over our freds We've already covered Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers, Alienator, and tomorrow is our Christmas special. So, yeah, my advice for that podcast, which I sense you are already following, is do not do it in chronological order. I think it would be more rewarding for listeners and for you to, like, jump all around in his career. It's like one day it's Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers, the next day it's Christmas in Vermont. You know, the next day it's uh, something else. Like if you do a chronological order and you're in the weeds of all these Hallmark Christmas movies at the end, it would be it would be a little tiring. Well, I'm looking here and they have Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers, Alienator, A Prince for Christmas, Evil Tunes. That sounds like they're taking it pretty easy as far as doing podcasts. That does sound good. Although don't my advice, if you're doing it out of order, do not burn through all the good ones in the first month. Do a classic and then do a uh, new one. Classic new one. That would be the structure that I would take. Oh, wait, there's the brain leeches, the alien dead, and then scalps, then biohazard. And then you got like 20 of them, and then his DTV uh, er action era, and then all of his Hallmark Christmas movies, which he's still doing. His newest one was Dog Napped, Hound for the Holidays. So thank you very much for that letter. And as per usual, you can send us letters at 4700clubpodcast at gmail.com. Well, you're in Australia, Will. 
uh, that's not a knife, which means that we'll be doing the classic Australian filmmaker, Brian Trenchard Smith. That's right. Brian Trenchard Smith, one of the great journeymen of the Australian film industry. His films include Stunt Rock, BMX Bandits, and of course, the great Hong Kong meets Australia film, The Man from Hong Kong, starring Jimmy Wang Yu and George Lazenby. Now, the thing about Brian Trenchard Smith's career that hurts him the most, in my opinion, his first movie is too good. And that nothing can live up to that afterwards, no matter what he does. But you know what? I'm excited to give BMX Bandits a spin, uh, to check out Siege of Firebase Gloria, which is one that he very much enjoys, and to uh, check out some late period ones as well. I did see the last feature film that he made, the Thomas Jane, John Cusack film. Uh, I did not like it very much. So hopefully there's one in that late period that, you know, he's still firing at all cylinders. Have you watched his George W. Bush biopic? He has a George W. Bush biopic? I have not, no. He made a film about George W. Bush's response to 9-11, just to come back to the topic we mentioned earlier. And he actually wrote an article, Why I Made That Movie, basically, which came down to, look, I'm a liberal, but I made it because I'm a director and I work. Yeah, I need to pay bills. Yeah, that's basically what it comes down to. Have you seen it? Uh, No, but I would like to. (laughs) I like how... The first review is, how is Dana Carvey in Master of the Skies a better Bush than this guy? (laughs) I have Brian Trenchard Smith's biography, um, you know, on my shelf. So maybe I'll crack it open and give it a read. He's a very fine storyteller in the, speaking of Joe Dante, all of the trailers from hell stuff that he's talked about, especially that he started as a trailer editor. So all, you know, he can talk in those little featurettes about trailers that he edited. And there were some big ones, too. So that's what we'll be doing next week. Until then, my name is Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. We'd like to thank some of our new patrons who include James Ladano, Bones Not Included, Melissa Tyler Thibodeau, Joshua Sklar, Grant Sterling, Alexander Lee, Samuel Langstone, QPLK, and Tim Schofield. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not keep doing this without you. I haven't had a chance to see it yet, but Justin, you saw the new Evil Dead film, Evil Dead Rise. I know that you... You're 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 a fan of Evil Dead. I think it's fair to say, uh, uh, Bruce Campbell. Yes, I am a fan of the first three movies that Sam Raimi has made of the Evil Dead franchise. I had no plans to see Evil Dead Rise at all until Peter asked me if I wanted to see it on Tuesday. So I was like, okay. And I'll get into why I had no plans a little bit later as I talk about the movie and what Evil Dead is. But you said you didn't have a chance to. Were you going to see this theatrically, Will? Yeah, I'd like to see it. I thought the trailer looked kind of fun. I don't know. I think that the, the brand, the Evil Dead brand carries weight for me. So I'm curious to see what they what they do for it. Yeah, I mean, I I loved the Evil Dead movies growing up, like as a teenager. Fuck, I I watched them a bunch. But what is the Evil Dead movies? This is the question that I asked, like, you know, afterwards when we left the movie. And I knew my answer already. And it's not really what the last two movies are. Because they seem to think, or even the TV show, which I did enjoy. You know, Bruce Campbell came back. There's three seasons of it. And it's like... Is it just deadites saying I'm going to swallow your soul and being possessed and doing wacky stuff? Because to me, that's not what it is. They do the bit from Evil Dead 2, stolen from the Three Stooges, again in Evil Dead Rise. But this time with a CGI eye going into the person's mouth. Well, you ask me what is Evil Dead. I mean, 
those first three movies, Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2, Army of Darkness, uh, are kind of wildly varying in tone. The first one's more of a straight horror movie, second one a horror comedy, the third one a straight-up comedy. But they're united, I think, by this maximalist style. They're united by, you know, whether excessive gore or excessive, you know, like really cartoonish comedy. Uh, like all three of them are basically cartoons. That's what unites and them. And unfortunately, the last two like Evil Dead theatrical feature films are not really that. Like you could argue I didn't like it at all when I saw it in theaters. The last, the Evil Dead movie, I found it too mean. It was like the torture porn version of Evil Dead, where it was about the pain more than it was about any imagination. And I feel like that's kind of what Evil Dead has evolved into, which is like, oh, we're going to comment on the other films. We will quote them. Maybe we will create suspense sequences and we will have the like deadites. But that's pretty much it. The thing I love about the Evil Dead movies, and even the first one, is that you're continually building on what you're seeing and also that anything that can happen. Like Evil Dead 2, out of nowhere, suddenly a corpse with no head and is holding a chainsaw, like bursts through the door and is coming at the person. And it's just Sam Raimi, what Ever wild idea that he has he's putting it on screen unfortunately any evil dead thing that has followed army of darkness is just like we can use the iconography that was set down in those films they are like a holy text but we can't really create our own thing and by doing that that's not the evil dead to me there, there's no point of interest there like someone going like dead by dawn is not like yes they did it they said it it's like no the joke about that one is that, like, you know, it's a big, giant, stop-motion monster that's saying it. That's what I find interesting. The best way I could describe Evil Dead Rise is that, like, it's the best DTV Miramax horror film they ever made to keep the rights of a movie. <laughs> where it's like, it did kind of the stuff that it, it was supposed to do. It's in one location. There's some suspense sequence. The character work was okay. Like, I, I was interested in everybody, like, way more than the last one. I wanted them to survive. It was bloody in a kind of... CG way there wasn't that much kind of really creative stuff the big kind of like throwaway thing is a monster where they all kind of form together but I think like the final monster is a metaphor for the film itself it's just like a formless blob that kind of looks cool at the end the person has a chainsaw and is like come get some and I'm like boo no do your own thing please well I gotta say you you haven't you haven't completely dissuaded me from watching it I mean you know best DTV Miramax sequel. I don't know. I'll take a solid three stars. Yeah, it's a three-star movie. Absolutely. It's like Hellraiser 5 Inferno, directed by your favorite Scott Derrickson. <laughs> I thought the Black Phone was pretty good. Come on. Oh, you oh, you did like the Black Phone. Whoa, shocking turn against Derrickson hater. I can separate the artist from the art. Is he still on Twitter? I don't know. I'm, I Listen, I have, can I say something? I have never interacted with Scott Derrickson at all. Oh, I thought you did. No. I but, thought that you had had like a Twitter uh, war with him. No, I have never interacted with him at all. All. Mm. I am blocked by him, though. So really? I don't see the tweets. I don't see the tweets. <laughs> You're one of those guys that's like, he blocked me and I've never even interacted with him. Hey, listen, I think we're probably, he and I are probably better if we don't see each other's tweets. But I, I thought the black phone was pretty fun. And, and the thing about like Evil Dead is I think it's the producer, Robert Tapper, because I remember when the Evil Dead show was coming out. And that was my main issue was the show, which is like every episode is like, ah, I'll swallow your soul and someone is possessed. And I'm like, OK, what else are you going to give me here? And and the showrunners like got fired because they're like, 
he would not let us do anything because they go, well, that's not really Evil Dead. So it's like it's trapped in amber for them until I would say the third season of the show when they got a new showrunner who's like, I'm just going to go wild. I'm just going to do whatever I want. And I found it fun and then it got canceled. And they're like, that's it. That's not what we want anymore. So it's like these movies will keep getting made. And when we went out for a drink afterwards, the waiter was like, oh, I hear you guys saw Evil Dead Rise. Is it any good? And I was like, did you like the last Evil Dead? He's like, I love it. One of the best remakes you know, I've, I'm like, you're going to like this one then. So, like, if that's what that is evil dead for people, then they will absolutely like this one. 